0: It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home with you?
1: Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do,
0: okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. I missed you. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be lesson They're as brilliant. Because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just gonna have to kill them. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants. Thank dammit, think, is to be a hero. Where's howie Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> <laughs>
2: We have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. I'm
0: He's inside? Who is he? Who are you, then? You have lost troublesome for a security guard. Uh,
1: sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go for
0: double jeopardy? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? I'm in charge of this situation. I got some bad news for you. Come up here, it look like you're in charge of check. He is alone, is tired, and he hasn't seen different Squad from anybody down.
2: Hey, pal, how you feeling? The thing's being equal. I'd rather be in
0: Philadelphia. But I want to land you in Only John can drive
1: somebody that crazy. <laughs>
0: He's an easy guy to like.
1: Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs.
0: And a hard man to kill.
1: Bruce Willis, Die Hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Hey, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? The movie Christmas show where we ask ourselves, is it yours? And today, welcome to our special Christmas episode where we tried to find the most Christmassy music, music, movie possible. And in order to get just the right field, I had to get the only elf I know on the Two True Freaks Network. <laughs> You've met Honeywell? Oh, come on! Honeywell is more of an imp. That's true. Troll. He's more like a Troll. Uh, but uh, welcome aboard, Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero. Yippee-ki-yay. MF-er. Oh, your language, Paul. Yeah, so we, we, we bounced around some different Christmas ideas, and ultimately we came up with Die Hard, the 1988 yeah. Bruce Willis vehicle. Now, most of you will already know the plot to Die Hard, I would imagine, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I'm just that kind of guy. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, New York Police Department Detective John McLean arrives in Los Angeles. He aims to reconcile with his estranged wife Holly at the Christmas party of her employer, the fictional Nakatomi Corporation. McLean is driven to the party by Argyle, an airport limousine driver. While McLean changes clothes, the party is disrupted by the arrival of a German terrorist named Hans Gruber and his heavily armed team. Carl, Franco, Tony, Theo, Alexander, Marco, Christoph, Eddie, Uli, Heinrich, Fritz, and James. The group seizes the tower and secures those inside as hostages except for McLean who manages to slip away. Gruber singles out Nakatomi executive Joseph Takagi who says he intends to teach the corporation a lesson for its greed. Isolated from the hostages Gruber interrogates Takagi for the code to the building's vault and reveals that his end game is to attempt to steal 640 million in bearer bonds in the vault with terrorism merely being used as a distraction. Takagi refuses to cooperate and is murdered by Gruber. McLean, who had been secretly watching, accidentally gives himself away and is pursued by Tony. McLean manages to kill Tony, pocketing his weapon and radio, which he uses to contact the Los Angeles Police Department. As Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate, Gruber sends Heinrich and Marco to stop McLean, who kills them both. Powell arrives and is greeted by Eddie, who is posing as a concierge. He finds nothing strange about the building. As Powell turns to leave, McLean drops Marco's corpse onto his patrol car to get his attention. Powell (laughs) summons the LAPD, who lays siege to the building. McLean steals Heinrich's bag containing C4 explosives and detonates. James and Alexander use anti-tank missiles to knock out a SWAT Greyhound armored car, but before they can finish its destruction, they are killed when the building floor is blown up by C4 that McLean dropped. Holly's co-worker, Harry Ellis, attempts to mediate between Hans and McLean for the return of the detonators. McLean refuses to return them, causing Gruber to murder Ellis. While checking the explosives attached to the roof, Gruber is confronted by McLean. Gruber put, passes himself off as an escaped hostage, hostage and is given a gun by McLean. Gruber attempts to shoot McLean but finds that the gun is empty. Before McClain can act, Carl, Franco, and Fritz arrive. McClain kills Fritz and Franco, but is forced to flee, leaving the detonators behind. FBI agents arrive and take command of the police situation outside, ordering the building's power to be shut off. The loss of power, as Gruber had anticipated, dis- disables the vault's final lock. Gruber demands that a helicopter arrive on the roof for transport, and the FBI prepare to double-cross him by sending helicopter gunships to take down the terrorists. However, McLean discovers that Gruber's true intention is to detonate the explosives on the roof, thus faking the deaths of his men and himself so they can escape with the Barabons. a plan that would also kill the hostages. Meanwhile, Gruber sees a news report by intrusive reporter Richard Thornburg that features McLean's children and deduces that McLean is Holly's husband. The criminals order the hostages to the roof, but Gruber takes Holly with him to use against McClane. McClane defeats Carl in a fight, kills Uli, and sends the hostages back downstairs before the explosives detonate, destroying the roof and the FBI helicopter. Theo goes to the parking garage to retrieve their getaway vehicle, but is knocked unconscious by Argyle, who had been trapped in the garage through, throughout the siege. A weary McClane finds Holly and Gruber with his remaining men and knocks Christoph unconscious. McLean surrenders his machine gun to spare Holly but then distracts Gruber and Eddie by laughing allowing him to grab a concealed pistol, still with two bullets, taped to his back. McLean shoots Gruber in the shoulder and then kills Eddie with his final shot. Gruber crashes through a window and while he momentarily saves himself by grabbing Holly's watch, McLean removes it and Gruber falls to his death. McLean and Holly are escorted from the building to meet and meet Powell in person. Carl emerges from the building disguised as a hostage and attempts to shoot McLean, but is gunned down by Powell. Argyle crashes through the parking garage door in the limo. Thornburg arrives and attempts to interview McLean, but is punched by Holly. McLean and Holly are then driven away by Argyle as we hear Let It Snow. The end of one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm not burying the lead here.
2: Uh, yeah. No, it's. Oh, God, come on. This, this is a true to classic. To even say it, it. oh yeah, come on, it, it, the movie is what almost thirty years old now. How have you? How have people not seen this movie? Well, I guess if you're younger, you might not have seen it. This movie is so amazingly fantastic. Everything about this, the the premise of it, the ridiculousness of of, uh, of Gruber. I, I mean, the characters of how ridiculous some of these characters are. The action in it. The everyman, the blue-collar everyman. Ah, oh, man. Right. Uh, We're going to have a lot, a lot to say about this one.
1: So what was, let's start with what was your first exposure to this?
2: Uh, my first exposure to Die Hard was actually Die Hard 2. <laughs> um, so I, I saw the um, the Pale Imitation first. Um, much like how I, first, uh, I saw Lethal, Lethal Weapon 2 first.
1: I think Lethal Weapon 2 was a better follow up to Lethal Weapon than Die Hard 2 was to Die Hard, although I still enjoyed Die Hard Two. Yes. I uh I remember well, when this yeah. came out.
2: But we're not talking about Die Hard Two.
1: No, no, we we'll stick with, with Die Hard. Then that means you saw this on home video for the first time.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, uh, back in the good old days of renting VHS tapes, yes. Um so after seeing Die Hard Two, I went out and got Die Hard One and Oh man. That was, um, that was the perfect movie to see at the, that age of about 10 years old, <laughs> um, 10 or 11, whatever it was.
1: Yeah, I remember when this actually was in the movie theater and everybody was telling me, you got to see this movie. You got to see this movie. And uh, I, I just, you know, I hadn't had a chance to, so it was already out for a couple of weeks before I had finally had a chance. And by the time I had a chance, everybody I knew had seen it already. And the people who I knew who were willing to see it a second time just weren't available. So I this this was the first and only time to my recollection that I ever went to the movies by myself, and I sat in the theater by myself watching this movie, which felt very weird. But I just <laughs> loved every second of this thing. I was riveted during this movie.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard not to be riveted. It's um it's one of those great movies where every single thing that happens is there to make more drama for the protagonist <laughs> and uh. It doesn't stop until the ending.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he, have you, it's hard to imagine a more put upon person than John McLean in this movie. I mean, just everything no, that can happen makes it so great. But yeah, there are some things in this movie. If if I'm looking for flaws, and I have a tough time finding any, to be quite honest with you. But if I'm looking for flaws, some of the story things, some of the story beats, seem just slightly contrived. Uh, you know, either either a little too coincidental or uh you know just just a bit much like for me like the scene that stood out i watched this again i did a rewatch last night although i really don't need to rewatch this in order to, to be familiar with it no and, but the one that jumped out at me last night was when at the at the end when uh when the one guy is trying to escape in the garage uh who i can try to remember who they said what is it's
2: uh sundown from uh, top gun
1: yeah, well, when, he, when he's trying to escape and then all, Argyle just slams his car, the, the limo into him. And it's like, well, how does he even know that that's a terrorist trying to escape? You know, like it just seemed a bit much.
2: Well, when you see, when you see a, an ambulance drive out of a Pacific Courier truck, you got to think something's going on. Oh, he's got the CB, though, in the rate, in the car. He even mentions it. He's listening to all
1: the stuff the police are doing. Well, and the other thing, the other thing was even that McLean gets to leave in the limo.
2: You would think oh, first, to- first yeah. of all,
1: McLean would be subject to an incredible debriefing. Absolutely, not not just, uh, not just we- what just uh, what what's his name, uh, Paul Gleason, uh, Dwayne does. <laughs> Dwayne. <laughs> and, and also, uh, you, you know. would think he's he's got to go to some sort of trauma unit. I mean, he's been oh, yeah beaten up and down. He 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 should be lucky to even be conscious right then. Yeah. So
2: um, you know, I mean, it's it's just you know what? Like it's that, the miracle really, of a
1: Christmas movie. What's that? It's the
2: miracle of a Christmas movie. Did you really want to see him getting dragged off? Because they would have had him cuffed because he killed about 12 people. So, um, I No, I wouldn't, want to, wouldn't have wanted to see that. I want the fairy tale ending. I want him to get back together with Bonnie Bedelia and drive off with, with Argyle in the
1: limo. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and my, my nitpicks are exactly not looking that. For that. They're re- nitpicks. From a moviegoer's point yeah. of view, I view this as a nearly perfect movie. Despite the fact that you can pick yeah. some nits in it. There's, there's very little in this that I could criticize in any way. And off the top of my head, like I said, I can pick some nits. But I can't tell you anything that when I watched it bothered me. I can't tell you one performance that I thought rang untrue. And I can't tell you one action the... scene that they thought fell flat. Now, if you can come up with any of those yourself, let me know.
2: I, I No, none of the action scenes fall flat. It's as ridiculous as some of them get, um, that's kind of the whole point. But uh, the characterization of the LAPD in general and the FBI in general is a little bit cartoony. Um, and that's for entertainment value. Because um, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if, if you're going to have those two, if you're going to have Johnson and Johnson get blown up, you kind of want them to be dicks. Because otherwise, I mean, you don't want the FBI getting killed, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, thorn- my, my, dad, yeah. my dad was a cop. And he he was always bothered a little bit by the movies that portray cops or FBI agents or whatever law enforcement agents uh, as being kind of buffoonish. You know, there's some movies where where in order to get the plot to move along, you need to do that because otherwise the people would never get away with what they're trying to get away with. And the biggest thing about this (laughs) one that I guess is the error is that they aren't willing to listen to what's going on, and they aren't willing to pay attention to the facts as they change, and they're just saying go according to the book, which is exactly what Gruber's plan is. That if they go according to the book, then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and you know everything is mm-hmm. going to go according to plan. But you know, John McClane keeps being uh, was it a fly in the ointment? Uh, what was it? Called? The monkey it was a monkey in the wrench. Monkey in the wrench. The that's pain it. in the ass. So he, you know, that's the only yeah. thing that makes them um, go off the the book. But everything from turning off the uh, electricity to, you know, sending the helicopter up there, it's all, you know, totally planned out by Gruber. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, But but it's also there to add another layer of how much crap can you heap on John McClane. That's really the whole thing. It's (laughs) this guy's trapped. There's only one guy willing to listen to him. And the guy that's willing to listen to him can't even do anything for him, really, other than just be a shoulder to kind of bear some of the stress that mclean's dealing with um but it's i mean it's all brilliantly set up you have they show mclean at the beginning on the plane hating to fly the guy tells him when you get to where you go and take your shoes off you don't think anything of it until he's running for his life and he's got no shoes and it's really not an issue until glass starts getting shot out around him (laughs) like everything is just placed so perfectly to You don't even question it. So for when it comes up, it seems totally natural that all the stuff would be happening to this guy. Um,
1: Well, it's 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 almost like a double Chekhov's gun on that because you have the scene where he take, you know, on on the plane where the guy tells him about taking off his shoes, which he then does. So then he doesn't have any shoes on. But then you have the second point when he kills the first terrorist and he tries to take his shoes. There's all the terrorists. I have to kill the one with with feet as smaller than my sister's. You know, so so he tries yeah. to he tries to fix the problem but can't. So it's almost a double check of gun and then when Gruber has him and, shoot out the glass, that's that follows yeah. through on it.
2: That's the other thing with McLean. McLean always does he always takes the next right action for what's going on. He realizes he can't get a signal out, he goes to the roof. He, he oh, this is an un you know, you're not supposed to be on this channel. Fine, come the f- down here and arrest me like he's trying to do whatever it takes to get attention to the situation
1: do i sound like he's i'm ordering re- a pizza
2: really never in <laughs> <laughs> the desperation and the sigh of relief when he thinks everybody's coming and his desperation when he sees them all turning around it's you feel it at that moment i mean you're totally empathetic with what's going on if if one other person had been willing to listen to him that early on, the situation would have been completely different. Uh, (laughs) but, oh man, just, just watching him try to deal with the (laughs) the LA police department. Oh man. I, I don't know. It's just, he, he is a blue collar guy, but he's always doing the next right thing to do to try to address the situation. And, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. He's not perfect. Um, but he is trying his best.
1: Now at this point, Bruce Willis was on Moonlighting, in which he was developing a a pretty solid reputation. He was very popular in that role. I don't know if you really were familiar with the show when it was on.
2: I'm familiar with it. It was not. I was just a little too young to be watching it.
1: Right. So, you know, but but that really you know, that was where he made his name for himself. That that show was very, very popular in the mid eighties. So he was a well-known guy. He was trying to go into the movies. Uh, the first one that I can recall, I don't know if he had any earlier, smaller parts, but the first starring vehicle that I was aware of was the movie Blind Date with Kim Basinger. Okay, yeah. So, so that was, you know, another kind of a very formulaic comedy. Uh, and that that seemed like what he was, what, what, you know, where he was headed, that he was going to be, you know, a, a, almost a comic guy, you know, more, more like an Eddie Murphy <laughs> than an action star. Yeah. You know, you, like, like the way Eddie Murphy was in Beverly Hills Cop, like I saw more yep. of that from him than a true action star.
2: Well, it's not that... He didn't really start off as the true action star. This was at the... It was kind of the antithesis of the schwarzenegger Stallone paradigm that was going on at the time.
1: Exactly. He was more of an everyone. He wasn't...
2: Yeah, he wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the most cut guy. He's in shape, you know, good-looking dude, whatever. Capable, but not the impervious... You know he's not Terminator, he's not Conan, he's not even you know Rocky and Rocky Four. <laughs> it's like it's a completely different thing. Um, and I think after First Blood, kind of changing the game for what action movies were, where there would be sustained periods of action and suspense. I think Die Hard is really the next one that kind of changed the game for action movies. I mean, it's become a cliche: Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard in wherever, Die Hard in the White House, Die Hard on a plane. It totally changed the game, and it's because of how well everything in that movie worked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean he, was per- he was he was the perfect guy in the part at the time. Like, everything just clicked at that point. Uh, now, do you know that the uh, original movie, Source the material? original actor offered the role was Frank Sinatra?
2: Um, don't tell me. Yeah, I was going to, yeah, I knew that. God, what a different movie that would have been.
1: Well, apparently the book was very different from what we finally got.
2: And, yeah, I've never read the book. I don't think I feel like I need to read the source material for that one.
1: Yeah, my, my understanding is there was, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank, but there was another movie uh, based on this same story. Or or based on another okay. story in this series. And I think Sinatra same character. may have yeah, the lead I can't in the remember. other movie.
2: Oh, so it must have been one of those deals, if it ever gets off the ground, I'm pay or play or whatever it is, I'm contractually obligated to do it. But, eh. That's what that sounds like. Thank God it didn't go that that way.
1: So, yeah, but, uh, uh, (laughs) yeah, apparently the, uh, you know, the, the $5 million that Bruce Willis made for being in this movie was, you know, outrageous considering that he wasn't really a true box office, you know, guy at that point. Well, gamble paid Uh, off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you, are you familiar with any of the figures on this one?
2: Uh, I'll take my best guess. Are we going to be talking production budget and then box office? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to take my wildest guess here. Uh, let's see. The movie was probably filmed in 1987. Fox used their own, own building for the Nakatomi building, so they saved some money there. Um, I'm going to say the budget for this was, let's say, $30 million.
1: Extremely let's close. Say
2: Extremely close.
1: Million. Uh, let's say domestic gross.
2: Let's say... Okay. Okay. Um, That would be about the standard for an '80s action movie. Um, And domestic gross, I'm gonna say 130.
1: No, you're you're overestimating that. The domestic gross was 83 million.
2: Okay. So not well. That's still a pretty damn big hit in the '80s. Oh yeah. 88.
1: And the the, uh, worldwide.
2: uh, Um, Worldwide
1: was 140 million. Okay. So a franchise starter. And then you yeah. top it off with I'm sure they made a boatload of money on the video release. Uh
2: this was I don't think this one was one of the ones that was primed to to be a um a unit seller. I think the Bat Batman the, the movie was the first mass market, you know, price to own
1: true, true. video. But, so but it, this has been after a the movie fact. that almost yeah,
2: everybody 10, I know owns. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah it's definitely uh, it, it made it made its money in that, so it was it was profitable. Hence, the reason we have
1: four more in the series. Yeah, we we can touch on that if you want, but I'd rather focus on. No, no, this. no, 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 no. No, it's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. Well, until, uh, we, until we, we, need we got to, me, to the fourth one, I was still pretty happy with them. The first three, I like. I I like the fourth one. <laughs> I think if you had called it anything but Die Hard, it would have been a, people would have been
2: way more accepting of it. I actually like the fourth one quite a bit. The fifth one, I fell asleep during. <laughs> So
1: I can understand.
2: But that's all I'll say about the sequels. We, we need to talk about the bad guys in this.
1: All right, well, we're going to get to because... them. We're going to get to them. I want to talk oh, about two okay, more good right. guys
2: before we do. Oh, do we get... Are we going to talk about Urkel's best friend? Well,
1: first I want to talk about Bonnie Bedelia. Do we have to? Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, here's, here's my take on it. I thought, considering how very, very little screen time they share, because we're really only talking about like maybe a minute at the end, I thought that I felt a real much, chemistry yeah. between the two characters. I thought she was perfectly cla- cast as his wife. And I thought, well, she, that I she's I thought like, she held looks up like to the mother. role well.
2: Um, she's likable enough. I just, I, I don't know how close they are actually actually are in age, but she always seemed like 15 years too old for, for John. But that's just my perception of it.
1: Well, I'm, I'm going to look she, right very... she was born in 1948. He was born in, where is it? why do i have other things i'm gonna say
2: this? i'm gonna say 50 i'm gonna say 55 54
1: 55
2: okay so, so seven, seven years, years
1: younger than her you, she you...
2: seems a hell of a lot older than seven years old. yeah um yeah not quite a, a winter spring romance but uh she just seems so much older than him in the film uh she carries herself very differently than he does even though oh. he's the the world-weary new york cop
1: but I thought I thought she carried herself very well as the strong female lead who I could see having that executive position in California while her husband was back Absolutely. in New York. And, oh yeah. I, no, I totally agree. You know, I thought she was pretty enough that you know you could say he's you know he's attract you know he has that attraction to her. They I don't know. Like I said, I felt a chemistry between them. I, I definitely thought that you know that their relationship was very believable.
2: Um. I, it's Yeah, it's believable enough for the movie, for, for me anyway. But again, I'm not really watching the movie for the romance. <laughs> you no, know? but
1: it gives him his motivation. I think that's the whole key yes, to it that. Does.
2: Yeah, it, well, I mean, let's just say that he just happened to be there and she wasn't there. He'd still be trying to save everybody that was there anyway. Maybe not to the degree that he does, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just... I don't dislike their relationship. It's just not the main thrust of why I'm watching the movie.
1: No, I agree. I, you know, you have more of a bromance with Urkel's buddy, Reginald. Hell v- yeah, Reginald Velgen Johnson.
2: Reginald Vel Johnson. That's right. What you take of him? Oh, he's great. He right. I, now see he's he's to me to me believable as former beat cop who can't get himself back out on the street, so he jockeys a desk now, and uh, it's you know he's got the perfect physique for that. But he also carries himself like someone that he knows the job. He's the only one on the ground that has any friggin' idea of what's going on. The only one who has a clue of what's going on. And nobody's willing to listen to him either. But uh, yeah, he's... um, I think you take him out of the movie, the movie uh, becomes a very... becomes a much bleaker thing. Not that every interaction between the two of them is a bunch of yucks. But without... McLean having that release valve. He, it would also be a very isolated movie too, because um, then McLean's talking to himself the whole time, which can come across as odd in a film. He needs to have somebody to talk to.
1: Yeah, well, he, and, he became a good valve for exposition too. Yes, exactly as you, as you're saying. You know that that. McLean gets to talk to him and you know reveal his motivations and kind of explain what's going on to the audience and having him see where the other people didn't then you have him explaining to the to the you know his superiors
2: shooting at the lights
1: yeah it's i think they're shooting at the lights (laughs) gleason's amazing at this too so the uh you know Um, the, the 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 incompetent Upper people is you know were're were amusing in their own way you had uh, Paul Gleason as dwayne Robinson and yeah. you know i do, I thought he was effective in the role and I've seen him in i't know a hundred, a hundred things over the years most, most memorable to me in trading places yeah uh, <laughs> getting getting uh getting a little geeks.
2: uh little loving from the little leaven from the uh the gorilla right
1: yeah exactly
2: yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think people in my vintage would probably recognize him as the principal from the Breakfast Club.
1: Another, another very memorable role.
2: Same role, pretty much.
1: Yeah, I, I thought he was great, just as being, you know, the the too thick to listen police.
2: Well, he's chief. not a he's not the beat cop. That's the thing. He's the one who's above everybody else. He probably hasn't been on the street in twenty something years. He has no freaking clue what's going on. Which it's a you know, it's when you're that far removed from everything situation like that's completely different but even he's not so thick as to not realize by the time the fbi is getting involved that something's rotten in the state of denmark you know so he's not completely uh, a bad guy he's just sort of officious is more the word
1: yeah i, w- I would tend to agree and then we had a uh, you know we, we take it to like you said to another level with the fbi agents <laughs> and, and their level of incompetence Even johnson and johnson no relation <laughs> No, the other one. <laughs> and uh, so, what does that mean? Does he ask
2: if he was the black one or the white one? Like that has to be it, right?
1: Well, I, 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 I don't. We never did hear what their first names were, so maybe. No. May, may, oh, maybe man. they have differing first names that somebody might know, but
2: uh. And they're not I, even know, they, nice they, to each other. They were more
1: other. comic relief than anything else.
2: Exactly, but then like, how did these two get partnered up? They clearly <laughs> don't like each other. Like, it's just so odd. <laughs> I was in junior high, dickhead. dickhead. <laughs> the smile on his face when he's saying it to him yeah. is great, too. That's the other thing. I, if you listen to the commentary track for this, McTiernan talks about – it was McTiernan, right? Yes. Yeah. He talks about the fact that you could only have this kind of horribly violent, ridiculous situation if there was joy going on at the same time. And that's the thing. There's clearly a joy for what the two FBI guys are doing, even though they're assholes. Argyle is clearly having a great time abusing the privileges of his job. The bad guys are having a great time. They're sneaking candy and drinking the the champagne and everything there. And they're enjoying being bad guys. Uh, the ode to joy plays for crying out loud. It, it's <laughs> it, You'd have to have that kind of fun with it. Otherwise, it could be... If you remade that now with a gritty reboot, it would be a very different movie. Um, And they probably wouldn't even have the the theft angle be a part of it. It would just be a straight terrorism plot to kill people, which is not a movie that I want to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of catching lightning in a bottle that everything worked out. Because I do think they took some chances on things like that. Uh, Some of the comic relief in it, some of the musical score, just some of the aspects of the movie. I think they, they did take some chances, but I think they all paid off pretty much. Yeah,
2: it, it's a fine line that the movie straddles, uh, and it has to. Otherwise, it devolves into grim uh, and insufferable or it becomes a total farce, which this movie does not. Um, every time McLean gets punched or cut or shot or whatever, anything happens. I mean, he plays it like like he's fighting for his life. Like you feel every bit of pain that he's going through watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because like I said, it's not the Arnold mold, it's the, the everyman mold. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, so let's let's talk about, our, well, the first bad guy I'm going to talk about is a little different than what we'll go to from there. But the first bad guy I'm going to talk about is, Ellis? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Ellis? William oh, Matherton. I think I'm talking about Ellis. <laughs> what a <All> right. jerk. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's William Atherton, right?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, but it's uh, of... a Peck. <laughs>
2: yes. Could I please see the containment facility? <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. No.
2: <laughs> He's kind of typecast too, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But what, what a, you know... You know, I'm just thinking one, one of the scenes that did stand out to me as just being a little uh, unrealistic was when they were interviewing on TV, and it wasn't William Atherton, but when they were interviewing the terrorist expert and he mentions Helsinki. <laughs> yeah! It was funny, but it didn't seem realistic. You know, uh,
2: the terrorist expert could be realistic, and I really do think the brain dead anchor also realistic. You know, it could it could happen. I could see that totally happening. Not really knowing what's going on, thinking that you're smarter than your audience or your guest. I buy it.
1: All right, I'll I'll take your word for that then. So then we get to I also, the, get to the big bad Alan Rickman. Yes. I mean, oh, what, God. what a what a great performance!
2: Uh, it's an exceptional performance. Uh, yeah, that I was, was my was unfamiliar
1: with him until I saw this movie. But boy, me too. I, just, I think American audiences in general were. He just chewed up the scenery and was awesome in this movie. He chews it in the right
2: way, though. He chews it like a guy that's a classically trained actor, which is different.
1: Which is ultimately the role he plays on Galaxy Quest.
2: Oh, I know. Which I mean, that's yeah I mean rest in peace man that was they were gonna there was gonna be a sequel on Amazon before he you know and then he died kind of shut that all to shit but uh hans Gruber um don't really think it's a stretch to say that it's a christmas movie, and uh the person who wrote Silent Night their last name was Gruber just just me editorializing there um Even just every actually bit of his delivery
1: Gruber. though just dripping like now I have a gun ho ho oh, ho ho yeah ho.
2: and 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 he's calm until until he's not calm at the end until bonnie bedelia calls him out says you're nothing but a common thief an exceptional thief exceptional yes and that's when he breaks he's totally not a hair out of place or anything everything's going to plan until that point uh i mean he's more collected he's He's collected in the same way that John is collected. He keeps trying to do the same right thing on his end, too. He's like, no, this is an inevitability. We're going to have to deal with this. But he just keeps his guys moving, keeps doing what he has to do. He has no doubts about his abilities, which is um, when you're watching a bad guy, you know, you kind of. I like watching the, the smart bad guys, and he's a pretty damn smart bad guy. He almost gets away with it.
1: Yeah, he's got a great plan, and awesome. his whole plan is these people are going to go buy the book, I know what the book is, and I'm going to work with that. Yep. And, and he's, you know, with the exception of the uh, the monkey and the wrench, he's, he would have gotten away with it, if not for yeah. meddling kids. Oh my god,
2: he really is a Scooby-Doo villain, isn't he? <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> That's great. Oh, uh, yeah. It's... um. I, you wanted a miracle? I give you the FBI. It's like <laughs> he's so thrilled. He's so thrilled to be doing what he's doing too. Everything's going according. To, it doesn't matter how many guys he's losing. He still Theo, thinks he's it's gonna. It's
1: a time for miracles. Yeah,
2: <laughs> Theo, that's right, Theo. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's genius. Uh, oh, it, you and then uh, stupid Ellis. Oh my God. Of course, Ellis has to get involved, right?
1: Jesus, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. He was a bit of a character, very yeah. two-dimensional, but he served his purpose in the movie.
2: Oh, he was '80s guy. He was '80s sales guy. Yeah, pretty. That's much. exactly what he was. <laughs> um, yeah, if Patrick Bat- Bateman from American Psycho actually wanted to do coke and get laid uh, like any other normal 80s guy, instead of kill people, that would that's that's who he'd be. it would be Ellis um <laughs> McLean calling him out <laughs> hey i think you missed a little with the coke <laughs> never ceases to make me laugh and i think it's funny later on when he when they ask if he can get him anything he asked for a coke even though it's the soda i still find it funny i, I think he was expecting a, a little bit of nose candy but um he thinks he's gonna go in there and save the day and no nope, just gets himself killed um I do kind of actually feel bad for Ellis because he's just too stupid to realize he's too stupid. Uh, um, and we, uh, another thing that this movie does is that uh, Star Trek Two, Kirk and Khan never share the same physical space. At a certain point in this movie, you're kind of wondering if Hans and McLean are ever going to share the same physical space, and then they do. And Gruber thinks he's getting a fast one pulled uh, pulling on uh, McLean. When he pretends to be uh, Bill Clay.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, oh no. Oh God, you're one of them. I know. It's he like, always sounds I like I can... uh, Christopher Lloyd. Uh, uh,
2: uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, and it's that's the fact that they have <laughs> that interaction before the final interaction just makes it so much sweeter um, because it's two smart guys going up against each other. Um, without that, I. I Losing that scene, I think, would have taken a lot of bite out of the movie, too, if it was just at the very end with the two of them confronting each other. but um, I would have
1: liked for that scene, and, and again, I'm picking nits again, I would have liked to have something in that scene that clued McClane in. The way they play it was, out is he just didn't trust the guy. But they don't well, give you—they don't give you like the smoking gun of you know this is what happened and he knew that this you know not necessarily that he knew it was Gruber but that he knew it was a terrorist. They don't give you anything to to feel that way.
2: Um, I think it's just cop intuition, right?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean,
2: it, but I would have
1: liked everybody. If they, that he's liked if into. Somewhere, somewhere along the line. He saw something that gave it away.
2: I think it's just paranoia. Everybody that he's encountered in that building since he left the party has been trying to kill him. I so at that a
1: table, pal. <laughs> next time you have a chance
2: to kill someone don't hesitate <laughs> the bad guys are so
1: cartoony but so good oh i love it now,
2: oh the, man the
1: one guy who's who's always a disappointment he's a disappointment for me in this and he's a disappointment for me in lethal weapon is that an Asian actor al Leon? come on i he's i look great. at him he's he's got a look about him that you think he's going to be some sort of martial arts expert that you're going to just see a great fight scene and in neither movie does he give it to you he
2: he is so in, he's in, he's in big trouble in little china he's in some other stuff so he, he yes he, he does do martial arts um he sounds nothing like what he looks like uh in real life um yeah, but I mean, he gets one of the best funny bits where he's eating the candy. They've already killed people in the
1: building, and he's concerned about someone seeing him steal the candy. Come on. I I just it's, would have liked to have seen him in a good action scene.
2: Yes, I would too. But he, you know, he he gets his moment, and he's, it's he's just the, got
1: like a very threatening look about him.
2: the yes, big mustache,
1: the hair, the, you know, the whole deal.
2: Yes, it's yeah.
1: And you and you just, just want to see you know you just want to see him get his. In a meaningful way, you don't want it to just see him die like a bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. Um,
2: I don't know. I think he serves his purpose in it. There's so many guys; it's like they can't all have a you know a big spectacle death. You know, there's a lot of guys that John has to thin out there. Uh, but that little bit of humor that he has—that's the kind of stuff that permeates the movie. When the SWAT team is running up to the building and the one guy gets the thorn scratching him and he goes, "Ow!" Oh. It's like. <laughs> That never fails to make me laugh either. It's so goddamn ridiculous. This group of hardened police officers, and he's complaining about the little scratch. Like everything about it is just so. It's all designed to to be counter to what the seriousness of it is. Theo's joy at when they rocket launch the uh, the RV. I mean, the quarterback is totally like you. You're having a good time watching him be a bad guy, you know?, um, and usually you don't really get that with a lot of movies. You know, it's they're the bad guys that you love to hate, but you also love to watch them do what they're doing.
1: yeah, every one of them's got a certain amount of charisma to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, even even fake uh, Huey Lewis at the uh, concierge desk. That's what I know? always,
1: since day one, I've thought of him as fake Huey, Huey Lewis. Oh my
2: God, we are on the same wavelength, man.
1: I've always thought of it. Every time I see him, I always think, think of
2: that. No trouble at all. He doesn't sound anything like Huey Lewis, but he kind of looks like him. Or might or have really money on that game, fifty bucks on them assholes. Oh God, I know like every line. This is one of those ones where I know every line. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> they all they all do kind of get their moment you know was it carl or tony is trying to do all the the stuff for the phones and then his brother just comes in with the chainsaw and he's like
0: nine, nine. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so let's talk I, a little bit and of, again it's a little same... bit about gudanov now oh the dancer
2: <laughs> he's a dancer he's a ballet dancer <laughs> i know but Oh,
1: he's he, great! He, he I don't plays want neutral, a, I want a real good part in this one.
2: Yeah, he doesn't have to talk much. He glares. He's got that amazing '80s hair, and the fight that they have
1: is—that's
2: uh, the I, I I like. That's what I when if it's gonna be a, a non-martial arts fist fight between two people that know what they're doing, and it's just two guys scrapping, that's the kind of fight I like to see. That yeah, and what then I the liked fight about you know,
1: that was that it didn't come down to two guys scrapping. It came down to a brawler, McLean, against. Kind of a martial art guy, a
2: little bit, yeah. But he's
1: he's it, throwing the high kicks at him and stuff. He's he's not just brawling, but McLean is brawling. You know, he he makes a mistake and he comes in close enough for McLean to yeah. grab him, and McLean will throw you know six quick punches in his face. Yeah. But uh, you know, it, it's two very very different styles of fight together. So I thought that fight was really well choreographed.
2: It is, and it's also shot the right way. Um, yeah, you, you, you
1: never you never lack the establishing shot that lets you know exactly what's going on. You never feel like, okay, now where are they or what's going on? You, you always feel like you have a grasp on that fight. It is one of the best shot fights that I can think of offhand.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the problem with a lot of today's action movies. They don't want to take the time to choreograph and they want to plop the handheld camera in the middle of the punches. It's like, I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me feel like I'm in the fight. If I'm paying the money, I want to actually see the fight. I want to see the choreography. When you choreograph a good fight between two or more characters, it looks better than just plopping the camera down. Uh, Put the time and the effort in and, and stage it the right way. I mean, that's the difference between so many movies now. When you think of a memorable fight, you think of the ones where you can see everything. Even if it's not completely technically perfect, like... Some of the boxing scenes in like any boxing movie that you'd see, you know, at least you're usually able to follow what's going on. You should never get lost watching a fight.
1: Now, ultimately, when he gets his at the end, that's another Chekhov's gun sequence. Literally. And I remember, yeah, literally, uh, if, if, only, if only George Takei had it, it would really be, uh, actually, it would be Sulu's <laughs> gun. Excuse me. Walter Oh, Katie. my. Uh, but we don't want to talk about Sulu's gun. No, I I had seen this in the movies. My parents did not. Okay. And when it came out on video, I got a copy of it and I brought it home and I watched it again with my parents. And as soon as as soon as Powell is telling the story about how he hasn't used a gun,
2: you know. My, fa- my father
1: said, When the movie ends, he's gonna shoot somebody and it's gonna be critical. Yep. <laughs> so it was like, boy, could that have been more of a Chekhov's gun?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um But that pays off too, you know, and it's just it's not like, hey, uh, McLean, I want to tell you this story about why I'm blah 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 blah. It's the two of them have been bonding through the course of the movie, and you know, John's feeling low, and you know, they're just the two—they're just two guys that are becoming friends, talking to each other. So it comes out of that sense of honesty that they have with, with each other, where you know, may, if things maybe weren't as severe as they were, maybe Powell doesn't tell him that, you know. So it's it's one of those things where it just it comes out naturally like all the other stuff that gets dangled out there the stuff with the detonators why are there other detonators on the roof why do they want the other detonators back so bad it's it's really well constructed
1: yeah I totally agree and and I guess if you know if you were looking to dissect it, it, it you know I guess that was a little predictable that that was going to happen when he told that story but it was fine it pays off and it and it feels satisfying when it happens
2: oh completely satisfying um they get the he gets he gets his moment he re, like he hasn't really had his moment other than the the laugh moment where McLean drops the body on him you know um he gets his his hero moment after Come being to the party pal <laughs> is that one of the most memorable lines in movie history maybe even more so than the yippie-ki-yay mother... i think so um yeah and they get he gets the musical sting and the slow motion and everything.
1: It's it's great. Now uh, just just as a, an aside, uh, about I guess it was not this past summer the summer before. You know they do free concerts over at Eisenhower Park near my house. So we we were driving by the park and we saw the sign. You know tonight's show and it was Davi sing Sinatra. What Robert? Now I had no idea at the time. I'm I was thinking Davi was some you know middle eastern guy or something i had no idea who davi was turns out it was robert davi oh he did he did sing in the goonies he's got a very nice voice he's he's from queens and uh apparently and he comes and he, he did it again this year so apparently it's gonna be an annual thing
2: where oh, he comes cool. and he
1: sings sinatra songs. so we went to the show the first time and uh he, he he does have a really good voice he puts on a nice show
2: all right if i'm around you away the next time that rolls around i might
1: have to join you <laughs> track him down afterwards we're like, can you, Mr. Darby, can you sign my copy of the Goonies?" <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's been he's one of those that guys. Oh yeah, character actor f- for decades. And not only The Goonies and this and License to Kill, but yep. I mean, you know, he's probably been in two dozen other things that I've seen and I recognize him from them, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what they were. He
2: was on TV for a long time too. Was it a media or profile or one of those shows from the the mid nineties there. That was on for quite a while. He was one of the cops on that. He was a good guy on that. Um yeah, he's been around. Uh good for him. I like seeing him pop up and stuff. I think he should get more work.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's he's I think he's he's a good actor. And he, he you know I like movies like this where not everybody seem not everybody looks like a movie star. No, he doesn't look like a movie star. He looks like a villain all the yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. And and You know, but even even Bruce Willis, as as we were saying, you know, he's more of an everyman when you see him. You don't look at him and think, oh, you know, he's he's, you know, Sylvester Stallone or or, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. You see him as, you know, a regular guy. My
2: my fiance, that's like her dream guy is Bruce Willis, (laughs) bald Bruce Willis. So I guess they I guess he does something for the ladies.
1: Oh yeah, I'm sure he does, but that's you know, but but he's he's one of these guys where like like you say he may he may attract the ladies, but also the guys see him and think, oh, I'd like he's to have a beer with this guy.
2: Yeah, he's he's relatable. Uh, at least he comes across that way. Um, in real life, I don't know, maybe not so much.
1: Oh, I have no idea.
2: <clears throat> but the characters he generally generally plays seem to be more relatable. Yeah, Cab driver and Fifth he Element. Projects. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's worked for him um, because it, not everybody can be Stallone or Schwarzenegger or even, you know, Seagal or The Rock. You know, there has to be other archetypes out there.
1: Now, uh, what did, I guess it's uh, worth talking a little bit about the score.
2: Yeah. I can't even, who is it? I um, can't even remember who did it now. Uh, so Michael Kamen? Let's no. See. Kamen did Lethal Weapon. <laughs> Excuse me. Silvestri?
1: I think it may be Sylvester, but we're going to have to look. Uh, Box Office Technical Trivia Soundtrack. It doesn't tell me who did the score. Oh, it has to. Well, I'm looking on IMDB right now.
2: I'm Googling. Die Hard Composer. Michael Kamen. Oh, okay. That was Kamen. Okay.
1: Now, I thought the use of, as you said, Ode to Joy in it is an excellent scene. I think that just really just... You know, it, you, you have the screen lighting up in front of you, but you also have the soundtrack lighting up in front of you. So I thought it was just really, a you know, a nice touch. But I think throughout the movie, the, the score is kind of one of these unobtrusive ones, but that it's always emphasizing what's going on. I don't know if it's one that you'd want to listen to without the movie, but with the mm, movie, I think it complements really. it perfectly.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's a standalone one, really. Um, it is... I mean, maybe uh, I think the only piece I might throw on if I was going to make like a mixtape of score stuff would be Powell's scene at the end where he gets that the, the hero cue uh, where he gets to shoot um, <laughs> uh, good enough uh, dead. That's a, a pretty, pretty nice piece. Um, but yeah, I really because I really can't if I try to think of pieces, I have to th- think of the scene in the movie where it happens. I can't just pull it from just the music itself.
1: Most of the music is more of the slow, suspenseful,
2: build-up yeah. kind of
1: music. And then you have your throw-ins of uh, uh, what you call it, the, I can't even think of it, the, the Christmas rap song.
2: Uh, it's uh, Christmas in Hollis.
1: Yeah, you have that, yeah. and you have, at the end, uh, Let It Snow. And that's yeah. why this is a Christmas movie. Oh, it takes place on Christmas! Yeah, he's, you know, for, for what it's worth, you know, John McClain is visiting from New York to... To LA because it's Christmas and he wants to see his kids for Christmas. Yep. So that's, you know, that's part of his motivation too. You know, that and Bonnie Bedelia, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. So this is absolutely, in my mind, a Christmas movie.
2: Yeah, it's never been anything but a Christmas movie for me. And this and Lethal Weapon, the two best
1: Christmas movies. So now I can't even ask the question because, you know what? It's Jaws. (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah, there is no mistaking this. This is I'm not asking
1: you the question because I already know your answer. It's Jaws. When, if, it, you know what I can tell you is anytime, and I think I've said in the past, my, my if I'm listing my top twenty movies of all time, you know there, there's certain standard ones that are gonna be on there all the time, and then there's others that'll come in and out depending on how I feel. and the order might change, but I guarantee you this this is a perennial on my top twenty movies of all time, no matter what. probably right around number ten.
2: yeah, it's definitely in my uh definitely in the top twenty five for me. it's it's one of those ones that, it passes the um, the flip test, you know. If you're flipping through and it's on TV, yeah, you, you're gonna watch some of it. You know, you got to see who who, who you got to see John McClane kill a couple guys or have a one-liner, and then it's like, all right, I'll probably end up watching the whole thing. But even if I don't, I get that little nugget of joy out of just watching a little piece of it.
1: And I had to wait, and I anxiously waited until my son was old enough for me to say, "Hey, you got to watch this movie." And um. I- yeah, I saw the point it pretty... That the profanity, uh, the violence, and the very, very little sex wasn't going to get the powers that be angry at me. Oh, the powers that
2: be. Oh, yeah,
1: okay. Uh,
2: eh, my dad showed me Alien when I was like eight, traumatized yeah. me for life.
1: But hey, whatever, maybe the man I am today. I would say I showed him this when he was about 14.
2: That's, I, I probably, I saw it a little bit younger than that. Um, Yeah, as long as it wasn't too raunchy, my folks were pretty good about the action movies, so... um. Yeah, I probably should have waited a couple more years, but it's but it's diehard. Come on. <laughs> you got to watch it as soon as you can. It's a movie that will help make you a man.
1: <laughs> all right, any, anything more on this one before we wrap it up?
2: Uh, no, I just I love, like McTiernan says in the commentary, it's all about bits of joy in it. Argyle laying out Theo, a sp- big spot of joy. Uh, Snape's face as he's f- getting pulled down on the, the harness. Uh, and they didn't tell him they were going to pull it, the reaction is real. <laughs> um, that's
1: another big piece of joy. Uh, <laughs> what, also, just to, to mention, one of the more realistic-looking falling-from-a-building shots, because I've seen some that look terribly...
2: They big. did... Well, the the close-up on him is great composite work, um, where they actually had him suspended, and they dropped him from a height. Um, it wasn't from the building. and They composited it in. But they didn't tell him when they were going to let go. So his look of, oh shit is real. Uh, and then the guy, the guy actually doing the stunt on the controlled fall from the building, uh, where you only get to hear the impact looks amazing as well. It's easy to hide a wire in the dark against that background too. So it's very convincing. You don't even need to see the impact when the, the the sound of it is enough alone. Oh yeah. Oh, and, and by the point that he falls off, man, you 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 feel like John does. He's beat to shit. You're ready for this thing to come to an end, and you're ready for the yep. happy ending.
1: Yep. And you get it. And if there's anybody oh, yeah. listening to this who has not seen Die Hard, shame on you.
2: We haven't spoiled anything. There's no way you can spoil Die Hard. It's just awesomeness. Yep. Yippee ki yay. Mother-
0: ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. is mine, such a perfect plan. Things will be just fine once we find this man. We will tear apart the building, searching floor by floor, showing him no mercy. There will not be a foe. So, Mr. Mystery Guest, Mr. Cowboy, you know you're not a part of this equation. We'll hunt you down, you little shit, and soon you'll pay the price. It's Christmas, but you're spoiling the occasion. Killing off my men, cried the little pest. Might as well cooperate, come down and join the rest. Armed with a machine gun. <laughs> it's just like an American to brag. But where could you be transmitting? Roof. <laughs> the plan won't work unless we have the bag. We must have the detonators. So, Mr. Mr. Guest, Mr. Policeman, you might as well give up this no way out now. And if not, I've got an office full of hostages to shoot. Sooner or later I might get to someone you do care about. Los Angeles police? You haven't got a clue. once the FBI arrives, they'll know just what to do. Once we have the bombs, then we blow the roof. I'd be screaming with excitement if I weren't so aloof. Oh, God, no. Please don't kill me. You're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. So, oh, Mr. Mystery Guest, I want blush on a So, oh, Mr. Mystery Guest, go fuck yourself, Hans. So, Mr. Mystery Guest, Mr. Rambo, it looks as though you're finally out of luck now. There'll be no more cat and mouse since Mr. Narrow is your spouse, this is the end. yippee ki motherfucker. shot a kid. I shot a kid. For 16 years behind a desk is where I hid. But now I finally come to terms with what I did. I shot